Exodus chapter 4 and verses 18 to 31. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt, and took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go, so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses and at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites And Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Raise your hand if you have had a journey you will never forget. It's most of us, okay? Pop your hand up if the reason for that is a car breakdown of some description. There's some. Raise your hand if it was because of some horrendous illness. That doesn't need to be discussed this morning, but there was some bad episode of sickness in the car. There are still some. How about um, if the reason for that unforgettable journey was because you forgot some documentation, be it a passport or your driving license or... I think the Dimmicks have raised their hand all three times. I never want to go on a journey with you. (laughs) Most of us have had one of those experiences. And, And what it does is it leaves an indelible impression about a sense of despair or horror or frustration or fear. And it leaves you with a memory of a journey that you will never forget. Well, in many ways, our passage today is a journey that Moses would never forget. It begins with him saying goodbye to a family that he has known and loved for half of his life. Then there's this glimpse into what the exodus would look like and and a divine preview of God's sovereign control over all of that. 
Then you have a near-death experience followed by an emergency circumcision. All of that takes place on a journey before Moses manages to get back to the elders of Israel and explain to them for the very first time that God has this great plan to rescue them. And it's easy to see why for Moses this was a journey that he would never forget. What is much harder from a preacher's perspective is not only working out what all of this means, but how all of it hangs together. Every week, we read and pray and read and pray, wanting to be really clear about the answer to one question. What is the main idea God is teaching us in this passage? Better preachers than me may be able to distill this passage to one big idea, but I can't find it. I think the only thing that holds all of this story together is that these events all took place in this one journey. And in it, God taught Moses four great lessons. God really is in control of all things. God really loves his people. God must be obeyed. And God will be worshipped. We're going to look at all of those four things. But just saying them briefly, if you're regularly in church, you'll probably think, hmm, done that. I think I'm ready to move on now. (laughs) And at one level, that's kind of true. Because if you're in a church family, you're regularly going to hear familiar truths. But there are seasons and circumstances in our lives that God brings us on a journey where we will push truth that might be in your head into your experience in ways that you will never forget. Hannah and I knew something of that when we left England for America 10 years ago. Uh, We were both committed Christians. We've been Christians for a long period by that point. There's lots of truth in our heads. We were busy seeking to serve God in the jobs that we were in, but were called to leave those jobs and our home and our family and our country to go and study for ministry in North Carolina. And And our our journey there was one of those journeys that we'll never forget, but that's a story for another time. When we got there, we were hit by what felt like a barrage of challenges and difficulties and hardships that we now had to live through in a way that we hadn't if we'd been in England. For 30 years, there were support systems and networks and all sorts of things that we'd relied on in many good ways, but perhaps looking back in ways that stopped us fully depending on God. And God pulled us out of that to go on a journey somewhere else to learn those truths from our personal experience, to learn that God really would provide our daily bread that he really would provide us with a safe place to live. And I mean that quite literally, because the first place was proper scary. He provided us with the finances for a car that kept on breaking down when we didn't have the money to fix it. And on and on and on. And in one sense, did we learn anything new about God through that experience? Well, not necessarily. But did we understand what we knew through our personal experience in such a way that our love for God and our wonder at who he is grew? Absolutely. 
And that's something on a much bigger scale of what Moses is going through here. God's revealed himself in the burning bush. He's made it abundantly clear to Moses that he's going to rescue the Israelites from Egypt. But isn't it interesting what Moses does next? He goes to say goodbye to Jethro. And in some ways, this is a really small detail, but it's important nonetheless. Remember who Moses is. He's an 80-year-old, 8-0-year-old Israelite, whom the God of heaven and earth has just explained to him is going to be used by God to rescue an entire nation of Israelites from slavery. Moses could have thought, I am way more important than Jethro, so you just come and collect the sheep when you're ready, but I'm off. But he doesn't. He shows us what it is like to honor your family, whatever you may be called to do. And what Moses goes back and does is he asks for permission to go. I think that's remarkable. An 80-year-old man with this really clear calling upon his life from God, and he shows us how to honor the authority within a family. And there's Jethro, who loves this man like a son. He knows that he's going to be saying goodbye to his daughter, Zipporah. He's going to be saying goodbye to his grandsons. But he looks upon them with love and says, go in peace. Moses shows us how to leave well. And then we're reminded of God's plan in verse 19. We're not exactly sure when God said this. If you look in our English translation, it says, now the Lord had said to Moses, if you're a a linguist, it's the pluperfect that we've translated here, and it gives the impression that what God had said to Moses took place before verse 18. Now, if that translation's right, that could have happened at any point from Horeb Sinai. But if you've got the ESV in front of you, or maybe a different translation, it just uses the past tense. It just says, and the Lord said to Moses in Midian. And that could also be correct. So what you might have here is a glimpse that Moses has gone back to Jethro in Midian to say goodbye to his father-in-law, and he started to get cold feet again. He's needed another nudge from the Lord to keep going. God has dealt with all of his excuses. We saw that last week. Now he goes back to say goodbye, and the Lord needs to say to him again, go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. It's a command, but it's also a comfort. How is it a comfort? Don't read it as, God says to Moses, it's safe now. You can go. That wouldn't make any sense at all. Because you think about what God has already commanded and promised Moses he's going to do. He's not waiting until there's some favorable democratically elected leader at Egypt who can negotiate with Moses so that they can release the Israelites. God has said, I'm going to free my people. He's sovereignly in control over even the most anti-God Pharaoh in Egypt. He's not waiting for there to be a kindly Pharaoh in charge. I think what we're supposed to understand is God is saying the beginning of the Exodus has come. This is the beginning. Those who had originally enslaved the Egyptians are gone. The Pharaoh, who was the one who put a kill order on your head, is gone. All of that isn't now it's safe to go back, Moses. It's now the Exodus is underway. So it's time to go. 
And so Moses packs up his family, his wife, Zipporah, his sons, notice the plural, verse 20, and they head off to Egypt. And as they leave, God reminds Moses of the first great lesson that he needs to remember from this unforgettable journey. God really is in control of all things. Verses 21 and 22 are another one of those summaries of everything that's about to happen. It's the brief cliff notes, if you like, of the whole of the Exodus shrunk down. And Moses knows that he's got his part to play. God reminds him, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. Moses and Aaron, who's about to step onto the stage, they've both got jobs to do. And they need to do them for God's plan to unfold. But God's the one who's in control of everything. He's in control of the response of one national leader. And he's in control of the freedom of an entire nation of people. Now, if you've read the book of Exodus before, you know that Moses, who wrote the book, refers both to Pharaoh hardening his heart and to God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Both things are described, actually equally often, as frequently as each other. And we're going to get, in future weeks, when we start to see this theme more, more, more frequently, we're going to get to as much as we can understand of this paradox of God's sovereignty, control over all things, and man's responsibility. Pharaoh would still be accountable for the way he hardened his heart. We're not landing there this morning. What I want you to see this morning is what I think is the focus in God's instruction here for Moses, which is, I am in control of all of it. I'm in such control that I know not only how Pharaoh is going to respond, foreknowledge, but I'm in control of that to ensure that he rejects the initial request and then will be forced to let my people go. God really is in control of those heart responses of individual people and of the safety of an entire nation. And you might think, well, what's that got to do with me? Maybe there's an interesting theological discussion to be had about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. But how does that relate to my life today? I hope at some point this week, some part of the world has been laid upon your heart as you've prayed for our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. But at some point this week, there have been family members or neighbors that you have who are not yet walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, who you have prayed for. There may be circumstances in your life or the lives of others where just the experience of the brokenness of the world that we live in has felt overwhelming and you have prayed for yourself or for others. All of those prayers depend on God being in charge of all things. If we are to pray to a God who isn't in control of everything, there's a possibility that the one thing that we want to pray about concerns a detail that he's not sovereign over. And then our prayers would be hopeless. We come to a God who is in control of all things, and that gives our prayers the Bible does not tell us why God doesn't answer all of our prayers or why he doesn't answer all of our prayers when we would like them to be answered 
or why God perhaps doesn't even answer any of our prayers at all. But God shows us that he is in control, and that is the reason we can pray. And not only is he in control, but the second lesson he needed Moses to remember is in that all of that control, he really loves his people. That control is not abstract. It's not, I'm a five-point Calvinist, that's my God. It's that control is exercised because he loves you. So many of us are so familiar with the vocabulary of the Bible. We skip over verse 22. God said to Moses, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go that he may worship me. Now, however many times you may have heard that language in the Bible, this is the very first time that God describes Israel as his firstborn son. And that's not sexist language. That's language in the ancient Near East of privilege and of blessing. It's a language in a culture where to be the firstborn meant that when the father died, you became the head of the family with all of the responsibility that came with that, but also with the blessings because to the firstborn son was given a double portion of the inheritance. And here is the God of heaven and earth saying to these men, women, and children, they, together, they are my firstborn son. These are the ones of all peoples on planet earth who will receive blessing and privilege and intimacy with me because I have set my love upon them. They are my firstborn people. Now, if you look throughout the Old Testament, you'll see that there's not as many references to firstborn son for Israel or of God being their father. And if you read the commentators, I think, well, maybe a reason for this is at the time the Old Testament was written, there were many false religions in the world that focused on a fusion between the world of the divine and the world of human beings. So you go back and read about the gods of antiquity, and very often they will talk about the gods being the children of other gods. Or they will talk about human beings, and especially leaders, so kings of nations, being semi-divine. Perhaps that's why in the Old Testament the emphasis is less on God's people being the firstborn son and God being their father. But by the time you get to the New Testament and you have the Lord Jesus Christ walking onto the stage of history and you see that the eternal son of God has come, that we would be able to call the God of heaven and earth my father in heaven and that he would call us his sons and daughters. The firstborn image just explodes. And it becomes one of the most precious images in all of the New Testament. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means you're adopted into the family of God. It means all the blessings that are Christ's become ours. You suddenly realize that the only way it's possible for sinful people like us, who ever since Adam and Eve have been born as enemies of God, not his children, the only reason we can become his adopted children is because the actual eternal Son of God willingly gave up everything 
so that we could become heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs with Christ. How many times have you read that and it's just not registered? Co-heirs with the eternal Son of God, of all the blessings of heaven and the promise of a new creation where we will be freed from all of our struggle with sin and suffering and be able to worship the one true living God as we want to and long to for all eternity. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I hope if I said, who wants that, they would all go up. And here's what Moses is beginning to see, the privilege of being the firstborn. So if we can just journey metaphor, park into the lay-by for just a moment. Can I ask you, do you know that you are loved by God like a firstborn? Do you know that your sin is forgiven? Do you know the blessings right now of forgiveness and joy and hope? Do you know that the Spirit of God is at work in your life, not perfectly dealing with everything that you would long to be different, but changing you day by day to become more like Jesus? Do you know, as Arthur Henstone knew when we had his Thanksgiving and funeral on on Thursday, that his eternal future was secure? Not because he'd lived a perfect life, but because he trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's amazing love doesn't stop with this ethnic people that he called the firstborn sons. It grows to include every man, woman, and boy and girl who would trust in Jesus that you and I would know that God really loves his people. The third unforgettable section in Moses' journey showed him that God really must be obeyed. Now, it will not surprise you to know that commentators describe verses 24 to 26 as the most puzzling in Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, that's really saying something, isn't it? (laughs) Now, we think it's hard enough in English, but actually there's even more uncertainty in the Hebrew there may be times when you think, ah, oh, I don't really understand it in, in the English, but Matthew and James will work out what it means in the Greek or the Hebrew, and then it will all become clearer. Not this time. Uh, here's a translation of, of what it literally says in the Hebrew. I want you to see if you can spot the difference to what's on your page in English. Now, at the lodging place along the way, the Lord met him and sought to kill him. So Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off the foreskin of her son and touched his feet. She said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. What's missing? What's different between that translation and what's in your Bible? Moses, exactly. There's no explicit reference of Moses' name in the Hebrew text. Now, almost all of our English translations have understood that the hymns in H-I-M, not H-Y-M-N-S, the hymns in verses 24 and 25 are referring to Moses. And that's why the name Moses appears in your English Bible. But in the Hebrew, it's him, him. Him. And now all of that leaves us with a long list of questions, isn't it? 
Here are the questions that I wrote down. Uh, who is it that the Lord wants to kill? Assuming that it's Moses, why does God, having revealed all of this great plan to Moses, suddenly appear? I mean, it's like a sideswipe, isn't it? The Lord says to Moses, when you return, verse 21, when you return to Moses, uh, to Egypt, see that you perform all these wonders, then say to Pharaoh, and then at a lodging place, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. He's like, what? Where did that come from? And then, and then how is it that Zipporah understands what's going on? How does this woman know that the thing that is wrong requires her to act, circumcise a son? Which son is it? Verse 20 tells us for the first time that Moses has got sons, plural. So which son does she circumcise? Whose feet does she touch with the foreskin? Who let whom alone by the time you get to verse 26? And what does the bridegroom of blood mean? There's a lot of questions there, and I can tell you now that we're not going to answer all of them this morning. But what I do want you to see is that it's a hard passage. And actually, the Hebrew text shows us that it's harder than we might think in the English. Some of the scholars that I have learned from, continue to learn from the most, would say that the hymn in these verses isn't Moses, it's his son. And linguistically, that's possible. I think by the time you get to the grammar of verse 25 and the description of what Zipporah does, it's a bit hard to read that. All of the hymns are referenced to one of the sons, Gershom or Eliezer, the two sons of Moses. I think, given that before this episode in 23 and all the preceding texts, and after it in verses 27 with the description of what Moses is to say to Aaron, the focus all the way around this passage is Moses. So I think our English translations are right to interpret the hymns as Moses. But why would God suddenly become so angry with him that he nearly killed him? After Oh, he's literally just sent him on this journey to go and rescue all of God's people. So what is it that brings Moses to this near-death experience? I think the answer comes from verse 26. The answer must be, I think, that Moses had failed to circumcise at least one of his sons. It's why God was so angry. It's why Zipporah took the action that she did. And it's why her action turns God's anger away from Moses don't let it slip your attention that this is the second time Moses' life has been saved by a woman. And here's this courageous woman. We don't know how she understood what was going on. We don't even know exactly what it means that Moses nearly died. We're assuming it means probably that he was critically ill such that he couldn't exercise the fatherly role of circumcising his son, which is why Zipporah has to do it, and then touches him in such a way that God would see that he's part of this delayed obedience. Now, I know that isn't going to answer all of your questions. It doesn't answer all of my questions, but the more I read into this, the arguments require speculation about details that actually the Bible doesn't give us in order to come to the conclusion that people want to get to. So we're just going to draw the line there if you like. If you'd like further reading on that subject, <laughs> you can let me know. I'm not expecting any emails. But I think what we're supposed to focus on isn't our unanswerable questions. I think we're supposed to focus on the reminder that God really must be obeyed. By the time you look back to God's 
covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, he was crystal clear on the covenant. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me, God, and you for the generations to come. Every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. Any uncircumcised male who's not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. I think what we're supposed to see is that as important a role as Moses had to play, it didn't excuse him from disobedience. You see the importance of what is going on in the covenant. All of this promise that the God of heaven and earth would covenant himself to people like us who were born in rebellion and sin and can only be rescued by his grace. He would make promises that were he to break them, it would rend God apart. That's how precious and important all of these promises are. And God is saying in the old covenant that in order to be a part of that covenant community, there was a responsibility for the men to do this physical act, to be a covenant obeyer rather than a covenant disobeyer. For a covenant disobeyer, receives covenant curses. Now, all of that might sound heavy to us this morning in the words of a Back to the Future Scotsman. But I think we need reminders like Exodus 4, lest we only look at the Lord through the prism of his compassion and mercy and grace and forget that our God is a consuming fire Forget that all the commands of the Lord are good and right. And that every command that the Lord makes of his people are commands that we must obey. All of us need to be reminded of the holiness and the commands of God. But we especially need to be reminded of it when it comes to leaders. This passage, this warning, has always been true. But you think about the number of church leaders over the last few years around the world who have been exposed for abusing their position and their privilege in order to disobey the commands of God. All too often that has resulted in the abuse of people that they have been entrusted with and charged to protect which is a horror to those dear people, but is also, as David shows us in Psalm 51, it is also and always ultimately a sin against the God of heaven and earth. And I think the abiding lesson of this inexplicable passage that most of us would prefer perhaps wasn't even in our Bibles is that we would be reminded that there is no position that excuses disobedience. If you ever hear of a church leader who says, well, the reason I did what I did and thought that everything was fine is that I'm one of God's workers. I can do as I please. You respond in horror and despair with the truth of God's word in Exodus 4. For all that Moses was called to be, 
for all of the great plans of God that would come into existence through his life, even Moses nearly died because he disobeyed God. There's no position ever that excuses disobedience. The final lesson comes after Moses completes his journey. Aaron and, and Moses get reunited at Horeb. Remember, that's another name for Sinai. And Moses does exactly what God had told him to do back in chapter 4, verse 16. He tells Aaron everything. Or, or literally, he tells Aaron all the words. Do you remember that Moses had this great fear that he didn't know what he was going to say? And God says, I will give you all the words, and I will give all the words to Aaron. So what Moses did when he meets his brother is he gives him all the words that God has given. He's going to be like God to him so that Aaron can speak on his behalf. And then they gather at Egypt with all of the elders, and you finally got this great reunion. Now, we know how the story ends, and we know what's going to happen, but can you imagine what it would have been like in that room? For the whole journey across this wilderness. You've got Moses and Aaron catching up on everything that's happened in probably the past 40 years. But one of the biggest things they're going to be talking about is, are they going to believe us? I know God said they would, but I've already said I'm not sure. What do you think? I imagine that discussion went round and round and round and round. And now they're confronted with all of the elders of Israel. We don't know how many, but there are the leaders of Israel. And there's that thought going through their mind as they're sharing all that God has told them. Are they going to believe us? Then you've got the elders of Israel. They've been in prison through the generations for the last 400 years. Everything that Moses and Aaron are saying is like, it's better than Christmas come early. This is everything they could possibly ever have hoped for. It'd be great to have been a fly in the room, wouldn't it? But everything happened exactly as God said. Verse 31, the people believed Moses and Aaron. And not only that, verse 31 when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. There's the final lesson. God really will be worshipped. God really will be worshipped. Now remember where the Israelites are. They're still slaves. They're still suffering. Nothing has changed they're still waiting to be rescued but they knew that their salvation was coming because God had promised that it would and simply because of God's promise hurting people in a suffering situation praised God that is a great encouragement and challenge to us isn't it we know the Israelites are not always going to respond like this. I'm not saying they're always the perfect paradigm of how you're to respond. There are going to be times when they respond to God by whinging, not by worship. I know that. But here, they get it right. Absolutely, perfectly right. They respond to the promise of rescue from God with worship right now. Not waiting until everything's different. Not well, if that's what you do, God, then I'll respond in the light of that when it's all changed. They're right in the middle of all of their suffering. And this is when they worship God. And brothers and sisters, that's our calling as believers. It's not to only worship God when we can see that things have gone well and we can see his action 
and the way that he's relieved situations. It is to praise him where he has placed us because he has spoken. He has promised his salvation. We are to stand on his promises all day long from the breaking of the dawn to the setting of the sun. We're to stand on the promises when we stumble and sin and condemnations pressing in through this dark and troubled land. You will guide me with your hand as I stand on every promise of your words. Father, in everything that is tricky and hard for us to understand from a passage like this, we bless you for the reminder of who you are. We thank you for your control over all things and the comfort that gives us in in being able to pray to you about everything, knowing that you really love us and what a fuller understanding of your love we have than Moses and Aaron did. Being able, as we will do this evening, to come around the Lord's Supper and visibly be reminded, physically be reminded of the love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that as we pray, our eyes would be fixed on the God whose control is shown through the love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we've been changed, because you have taken our sin and banished it forever and have clothed us with your righteousness, would we see the privilege that is ours to really live lives of obedience? And Father, for all of us in the room, there will be struggles that we are continually wrestling with, even this day. Please, would you give us encouragement by your spirit, that your grace is more powerful than all of the sin that we're wrestling with, would you help us even this day to turn away from those battles and those sin struggles and to see the joy and the privilege of obeying you as firstborn sons and daughters? And would all of that transform the way we live? Would we be people who in the midst of our struggle and our suffering can see the promise of salvation is coming, can be confident in it because you have said it will come? And Father, would you help us, as Simeon reminded us earlier, to be hopeful of our future eternal joy such that even now we would worship you with joy. Help us, Heavenly Father, to be people who stand on every promise of your word that we would bring you glory, even as we sing now. Amen.